Hi, this is Lily DeHoyas Anderson, and you're listening to Choosing Glory. I so appreciate you who are listening to the podcast, and thank you for coming up to me sometimes when we run into each other in different places. It's always a wonderful surprise to have somebody comment on the website, and I really appreciate the feedback and the kindness, and hope you'll keep listening. And share it with your friends. This is about 2 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13, the second half of this epistle of Paul's. And lovely things to talk about today. Let's get started. This first chapter 8 that we're studying this week is talking about giving to the poor. And there's some nice things that Elder Bruce R. McConkie says about this in his Doctrine of New Testament commentary that I'm going to share. He does mention first that Paul and these early saints clearly set up some kind of welfare system where they helped each other temporally. And we know from some other indications that even parts of this early church tried to live the law of consecration. Here we don't hear that they're exactly keeping all things in common, as it mentions somewhere else. Nevertheless, clearly they had some kind of desire and mandate that they accepted to help one another. And this, it's good to realize that this always exists in the church of God. There's always this orientation toward helping our neighbor. And of course, again, we go back to the first two great commandments, to love God and love our neighbor. And part of them is to do this kind of temporal help to make sure that nobody is living beneath a certain level. I remember, I think I tried to Google this years ago. Didn't Google it again just now, but there is a statement that I heard then Elder Thomas Monson make when we lived in Chicago. So that is a very long time ago. It would have been like the very early 80s. And they used to have welfare sessions in the church at conference time. So this, I believe, was in one of the welfare sessions. And this young Elder Monson said something along these lines that there is a level beneath which no one should sink when so many have so much. And that really caught my attention. There is a level beneath which no one should sink when so many have so much. And that sounds absolutely true to me, that we do have a disparity of abundance, although In some countries, there's a great deal of abundance, and we might say that even our relatively poor have many more luxuries than generations past. However, there are people who still are in great need, and right now we're in a world of refugees. Lots of people who are displaced from their homes or hurt by war or other natural disasters, troubles of various kinds, religious persecution, things like that. And they can be in dire straits. So I think it's always good to remember that Christ's church always includes a mandate to care for the poor. So here's from Bruce R. McConkie's Doctrinal New Testament Commentary. Unless and until members of the church give freely of their means for the support of their less fortunate brethren, they do not develop those attributes of goodness and godliness, which prepare them for a celestial inheritance. Very clear, very clear, succinct statement. Unless and until members of the church give freely of their means for the support of their less fortunate brethren. So freely, we need to give freely of our means, meaning we're not stingy, we don't covet our own property, as you know, Martin Harris was warned against that we are willing to give, that we have a generous heart, a willing heart. We're not going to develop the attributes of goodness and godliness, which prepare them for celestial inheritance. We're always talking in this podcast about choosing glory, about qualifying to live at a celestial level That's never going to happen if we don't freely give of our means for the support of our less fortunate brethren. The church makes it so easy, but I also love seeing people who go in other arenas to also give. They may make generous contributions 
in the church, knowing that the church will handle the distribution of goods to a lot of unfortunate people in many circumstances. But there are a lot of other good causes. I understand that sometimes we're a little concerned because we have learned of graft and corruption in the nonprofit system sometimes, and we wonder how much of the donated money actually goes to its intended recipient, or does it get lost in the payment of middle managers or administrators? So I would do due diligence in checking out the charities that we might want to donate to, but there are a lot of good causes out there, and it's nice to be able to give, and many of us do that at Christmas time, but there are other times of the year when that need exists, so I hope that we are cheerful givers, and of course, he ends with that in a moment in this chapter of Second Corinthians, but let me continue with McConkie for a minute, but it must needs be done in mine own way. And behold, this is the way that I, the Lord, have decreed to provide for my saints, that the poor shall be exalted in that the rich are made low. We hear that phrase a lot in scripture. The poor shall be exalted in that the rich are made low. And it doesn't mean that the rich are abased or demeaned or less than. It means that the rich willingly, willingly give of their substance in order to help the poor, and they allow themselves to go lower than they were in terms of those resources. They are willing to give up some of their stuff, some of their resources, and they see that it's needful for others who have a real lack. And then the Lord makes this wonderful statement, for the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. And this is always the way it is with the Lord. He does invite us to participate in this celestial law. It is. It's qualifying us for a celestial kingdom. It is helping us choose glory to give of our substance to the poor, hopefully in wisdom. And we can do that through the church for sure, through tithes and offerings. And there are many places you can specify that you want your contribution to go except for tithing, which we just pay and the Lord gives it to the church leaders and they do what they want with it. So anyway, in these other arenas, we have many opportunities to give and we can be as personal about it or as, you know, sort of general as we want to be. I hope, though, that we are also kind to our neighbors and if we see a need there that we are willing to pitch in and help. I do want to say a couple of things here. First of all, I want to mention that the welfare programs of the church have always used this phrase, which is very nice, which is very nice. That is that the program of the church's welfare system is designed to give a hand up and not a hand out. There's a very nice distinction being made in that phrase, that this is not about enabling somebody who won't do anything for themselves. Now, we have to be careful about condemning other people. We may not always know their circumstances, and often we have heard that it's better to give to 10 people who are unworthy than to deny the one who is worthy of help. And I think we have to be cautious about thinking that we can always make a judgment. And yet, sometimes in more close personal circumstances with a family member or a close friend, we may see that I give and then it's wasted, or I give and yet they are spending money on extravagances and not on the things that they said they needed. And it's okay for us to question that if it's money that we are offering or resources that we're offering. It's okay to say, like, I want this to fulfill a need, not to support a luxury or a luxurious lifestyle. On the other hand, giving a hand up implies that the individual themselves is looking for ways to rise out of their difficulties and they're willing to do what's within their power. And that can vary tremendously. Some people actually may not be able to do anything anymore about their circumstances, whether through illness or disability or circumstances of other kinds, that they really can't do a lot for themselves in that situation. But the idea is to help them make an assessment of like, is there something they can do? or that a family member can do to help. And then we can facilitate their getting into a better condition by maybe pointing them towards some good opportunities or helping them find a job. Or, you know, bishops are often, of course, counseled to not, you know, pay for luxuries, but to help people sustain life. And then to try to help those people find opportunities to work and to serve. We have a whole employment system in the church 
We have a desert industries system and other systems that can allow people to give something back so that they are not becoming dependent on the dole, because that's not the Lord's way. He wants us to become one. And he tells us very clearly that he does not want the idler to eat the bread of the laborer. So anyway, there has to be some wisdom involved in giving, is what I'm saying. And I hope that we are thoughtful and prayerful and we remember the circumstances. And when in doubt, we err on the side of generosity, because that will always be safer, rather than to be stingy or covetous of our own stuff. Now, I want to say something else about this last phrase that comes from DNC section 104. For the earth is full and there is enough and to spare. Brothers and sisters, isn't that contrary to what we're hearing all the time? I mean, since I was pretty young and there was a guy named, I think it was Paul Ehrlich, who wrote a book called Zero Population. And he was one of those doomsayers that said the world would end. I forget. It was supposed to end at like 1990 or maybe it was even much earlier because really there's a long history of people announcing that the world would run out of stuff. There would be too many people for the earth to sustain life on this planet, that we would overcrowd the earth, we would consume all the natural resources, and we would leave it a desolate wasteland and a cold, dead planet flying through space. These kinds of people have been around for a very long time, and I feel like this is really the work of Satan, because it flies in complete opposition to what the Lord has said. The earth is full, and there is enough and to spare. He does have the whole world in his hands. You think he can't make bounteous harvests no matter what? You think he can't change the temperatures? You think he can't ease the storm? How many times does he have to calm the tempest or walk on that water for us to know that the earth is his? He commands the elements. He commands the systems that govern this planet. And he blesses the people who will have him to be their God. And I did mention this just last week, I think, that it's so ironic that Satan comes up with a ready-made way to distract people from the need to repent. When the earth is in commotion, it is a witness to us that we should examine ourselves and repent. And yet instead, people say, oh, it's climate change. Let's spend even more money that we don't have to accomplish a goal that is impossible for us to accomplish. I don't know if you heard this, but one of these climate agendas, they, I think it's that Inflation Reduction Act, isn't it? That somebody went through and looked at all the measures that were being taken and the enormous amounts of money that were being spent in order to address climate change. And then they found that if everything went swimmingly, the best possible projections were that in 100 years, we could lower the temperature by like point something, you know, I don't know, it was less than one degree of temperature. Is this the answer? Is this the answer that we're going to impoverish nations and bankrupt ourselves? Maybe you've seen some of the protests that are going on in Holland from the farmers who are not allowed to use nitrogen on their farms anymore, and they can't make it. Or Sri Lanka, where they had a total revolution, but they had a very high ESG score, economic, social, and governance score that ties into things like climate change and what policies the country has. And it bankrupted the country. People were starving to death and they stormed the presidential palace. This was several months ago now. This is what happens when we think we're in charge. When we think we can mold the elements to our will if we just spend enough money that we don't have and if we try to regulate everybody to death. Instead, God says again and again in various ways that the earth is his And it is full and there is enough and to spare. The difference is that we turn to him, that we acknowledge him, that we covenant with him and we follow that covenant path, choosing glory, building Zion. And there will be enough for us. And there will always be enough for Zion. And the practice of Zion is that the rich do not covet their own possessions, but give freely to those 
who are struggling so that all can have an opportunity to grow. A hand up, not a hand out to the idler, but a hand up. You know, the church had a really cool program that Chris and I heard about several years ago now. There was a couple in our ward at the time who had been assigned to do an inner city mission. And they ran into somewhere and we were asking how it was going. And the husband, whose name was Mike, said that they had instructed him to help illegal immigrants form some kind of LLC, I think was uh, the, the idea, or you know, some kind of business that was incorporated legally with the state, and that gave them an EIN, or an employer identification number, which provides a means whereby they can pay taxes. So although they may not have had legal immigration status in this country, at least they were paying into the system that was housing them and from which they were drawing some of the resources, public education, schooling, things like that for their children or, you know, some health services that they had access to even as, you know, non-resident aliens or whatever. Anyway, the point is that I thought how brilliant that is and how in keeping with the Lord's way, instead of getting involved in the political part of it, the church was like, how can we give them a hand up that will allow them to pay back something of what they're receiving, contribute to the pie that they're taking a slice of? And think about it. How many of us would have as big a problem if we ever have the ability to clean up that mess, which I don't know, I think it may be beyond us at this point, especially the people in charge, but that all the people in charge, by the way. I mean, I don't think that one side of the aisle is a lot better than the other one right now, although there may be still a few significant differences in some individuals. However, here we are. And if they would pay into the system, wouldn't we feel better about them taking advantage of some of the resources? The scary part is that, you know, if people come and they consume those resources that are being paid for by our tax dollars, and then they don't pay into the system, then it's fewer and fewer people who are paying taxes to support more and more people who are not. And you can see where that's going to end. The system ultimately crashes, and we're seeing all over the complaints about that. There's a lot of generosity given to the people crossing the border right now. And yet when Maui has a terrible and devastating fire that does so much damage to life and property, they get $700 a piece, which doesn't amount even to, you know, a blip on the radar screen next to what people who come illegal to this country are given as they enter. So it's kind of sobering. This verse in section 104 of the DNC concludes, Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made, and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell, being in torment. Serious warning. God wants us to help others. With a hand up, not a hand out, but when in doubt, let's err on the side of generosity. Remember that with the Lord, there are no scarce commodities. We live in a world that has an economy of scarcity, where there's only so much. And so people win and people lose in their transactions. But if we can understand that God is above all of that and all the things that matter are not scarce to God. So if we can trust in him and do things the way he says, he will fulfill his promises to us. I know that's so much easier said than done. I have worked with people who are in financial disaster, and we went through a financial disaster of our own because of getting ripped off once. So I understand how hard it is to stretch our faith in this area sometimes. And now I hear a lot of people talking about how do you dare retire in an economy with this kind of inflation? I mean, there are things that give us concern and pause and fear. And I'm not saying that there aren't trials and tribulations that may occur in those areas and that God doesn't immediately send a check in the mail. 
to alleviate our suffering. Nevertheless, the growth potential during those times for us to gain greater trust and greater faith in God and trust that he keeps his promises to his covenant people, to his tithe-paying covenant people, let's do it. Let's, let's trust him and in doing so, choose glory. Of course, that verse that I was talking about is in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. Let's read it. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. Oh, I was talking to Chris about this, and I almost forgot, but he mentioned a story that is very pertinent to this subject. It was by Marion G. Romney, and he told this story himself, and you know what? I didn't look it up, so you'll have to just listen to my memory of this story, which is going to be imperfect, but the gist of it is about this. Back in the day when the church didn't build all the buildings and the temples without donations from the local members... Mary G. Romney tells a story about how he ended up in, I think it was three situations that were kind of in close succession chronologically, where he was given an assessment to contribute to a new church building. And I think it was because of ward divisions, or maybe they moved once, but at any rate, that's how they used to do it. Like the bishop had our tithing receipts, right? So they had kind of an idea of what our income would be based on the payment of 10% of that income. And they knew what the needs were for the new building or the new temple. And they would invite every couple to come in, usually during fast offerings, or sometimes they had to do it at other times of year. And they would say, you know, brother and sister, so-and-so, we could use this much from your family. And they would give an amount. So Mary G. Romney had twice in a row been assessed and within, like I said, a short space of time, been given an assessment that he fulfilled. And then <laughs> he said something happened and then they had to give a third offering and they were given another assessment. And he said, I paid it, but I must admit I had kind of a grudging spirit. And then he came across Second Corinthians again, of course, not for the first time for this good man, but he saw this very thing about let him not give grudgingly or of necessity for God loveth a cheerful giver. And actually, it may have been another verse. I think, in fact, it was the verse in Moroni 7, verse 8. But same idea as Paul's talking about here. And it says, if a man giveth a gift grudgingly, wherefore it is counted unto him the same as if he had retained the gift, wherefore he is counted evil before God. <laughs> so, Mary G. Romney read that after he had grudgingly given his third building assessment within a pretty brief period of time, and he decided he could not stand to leave it the way it was, and he decided to pay that third assessment again with a cheerful heart. <laughs> These men are impressive for a reason, brothers and sisters, and they have the spirit with them for a reason, because they take the Lord literally. And they want to be acceptable to the Lord. And they want their gifts to be acceptable and to be cheerfully and freely given. How wonderful is that? So, wow, spent a long time on chapter 8 and 9. I have to go back to chapter 8 for just one moment because I love this verse. And I don't think I've ever noticed this one before. So it was fun to see it in verse 11 of chapter 8. Now, therefore, perform the doing of it. Perform the doing of it. <laughs> So this is long before Nike, right? And it's just do it logo. And even long before President Kimball, who had a mantra, kind of a saying that he would share a lot, do it. And then at some point in President Kimball's ministry, he added, do it right. And later on, he added even do it right now. So he kind of had some fun with that phrase. Again, this predated Nike by a long time. And then Somebody, I think it was N. Eldon Tanner, was in the administration building, and he was talking with one of his colleagues, or an, it might have been an assistant or a secretary or something, but however that was, the story goes that he pondered for a minute. He said, well, do you know what happens if you mix Spencer W. Kimball with J. Golden Kimball? And J. Golden Kimball, you might remember, was called the swearing apostle, right? Because he was pretty colorful in his metaphors. And he said, he paused for a second, he said, you get 
do it, damn it. So anyway, had a nice sense of humor there too. And I love that this is saying this so clearly, perform the doing of it. That there was a readiness to will. So there may be a performance also out of that which ye have. Just do it. We need to, to just move forward in faith. Going to chapter 10, verse 5. It talks about, in the verse before, our weapons of warfare are not carnal. But it's about pulling down these strongholds of false ideas, right? So in verse 5, casting down imaginations, meaning false doctrines, really false ideas. And every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. And here we are in a world where everybody seems to know better than God, it seems, or at least so often that's the case in public discourse. And the Bible is for small-minded people, or Christianity is for, you know, pathetic losers. I mean, it's really, it's really out there in very aggressive ways. So we are in this time, right? So there's a nice comment here by Paul, that the answer to that is to bring into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We know that our thoughts can condemn us. Bruce R. McConkie adds his comment on this. Thoughts are the material from which belief is built. That's good. That's a good thought in and of itself. And I think that would be a great thing to talk about with our friends and family members. Thoughts are the material from which belief is built. And to be saved, men must believe and therefore think the right things. We are therefore expected to govern our thoughts. Now, it has often been said that we can't always control the thoughts that may enter our minds. They may pop into our mind some old thing or something that, you know, we thought was kind of expunged from our minds and something triggers that memory or that thought. We may not be able to control its appearance, but we can control whether or not we make it comfortable. If we play with that thought and we revel in that thought or we wallow in that thought, we are not doing what God expects us to do to govern our thoughts. If we cast it out, if we change the channel, if we Activate another thought so that we can move forward to something else. And remember, you can't not think about the elephant. So, to use a double negative, so we need to replace it, not just sit there and say, I won't think that, I won't think that, because we're thinking it. But if we can replace it and have some things ready to hand, music, a verse, a nice saying, you know, thinking of somebody else, calling somebody else, writing somebody else, an uplifting text or whatever. There are things we can do to govern our thoughts. And that is so important because this is where belief is built. And if we have a lot of negative thoughts, it really is going to work against us. And I talk about this a lot with clients because I've really become so sensitive. I like to think I'm sensitive about this. And I'm sure sometimes I do better than other times. But I try to be sensitive to the energy of our words because they represent the energy of our thoughts. One of my daughters was mentioned to me the other day that she was talking with some friends and there was a lot of self-doubt expressed or self-criticism expressed. And she took a minute and she said, you know, that's not a good energy there. I don't know if she used the word energy and I don't remember what her words were, but basically she was trying to share that like, that's a representation of our thoughts. Why are we thinking so negatively about ourselves? Now, I'm not saying that we should exalt ourselves either, but there's a sweet spot in there that God wants us to find where we know our worth and then we keep working on our worthiness. But we don't doubt our worth and we don't think and say negative things about ourselves just to try to demonstrate humility or because we're so used to it. And a lot of times it's not that somebody's trying to prove they're humble. It's more that they are used to thinking those negative self-talk kinds of thoughts. So catch it. Catch it. I mean, I talk to people who sometimes will say things like, you know, oh, I'm just I'm such a terrible person, or I'm so weak, or I'm, you know, I should do this and I should do that. And I think there's a lot of negative energy in the word should. I think we have to change it to I choose, or right now I can't choose to do that, but I will when I can. So that we're not just bringing in these negative ideas into our minds and hearts. There is a spirit around positive energy and thought and negative energy and thought. And we've talked before about how 80% of people's thoughts typically are quite negative. So if we're going to turn that around, we've got to be intentional. 
Chapter 11 uses some nice phrases. One of them is from verse 3, the simplicity that is in Christ. I'm not going to talk about that. Just going to enjoy that phrase. And then in verses 13 and 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, they talk about false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. So obviously they are not apostles of Christ. They are not called by authority or set apart by those who have the authority. But they call themselves or designate themselves as messengers or people with a ministry. And to no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. In other words, don't be surprised because even Satan is going to try that. Remember, we've talked about him as the master counterfeiter. He seeks to deceive. And he does that often by pretending to be good. He can even come across as an angel of light. And people might be deceived by that. We are given instruction in the DNC about how to handle that so that we know if a messenger is truly from God or if it's a false spirit trying to deceive us. That happened to Joseph Smith, and he receives that instruction. You can check out DNC section 129 if you want a refresher on that. I'm not going to spend more time on it right now. But I am going to say that here's another nice quote from Adam McConkie. Satan imitates the truth. God has a church and so does the devil. There are false Christs, false prophets, false apostles, false spirits, and false ministers. In relation to the kingdom of God, the prophet Joseph Smith said, speaking of the church restored in this dispensation, the devil always sets up his kingdom at the very same time in opposition to God. Also, false prophets always arise to oppose the true prophets, and they will prophesy so very near the truth that they will deceive almost the very chosen ones. Pretty stark warning. False prophets always arise, and they will prophesy so very near the truth that they will deceive almost, note the word almost, the very chosen ones. If we stay close to God, stay close to our covenants, diligently, we know we're clumsy and imperfect, but we are diligent and our hearts are set on these things, our minds are set on these things, then we will not be deceived. Now, we have to gain wisdom, and we've talked a lot about sophistry. We're going to talk about it again here in a moment, but that is that mingling or coming so near the truth and then turning a little bit so that deception can happen. And it's all around. I mean, some of these false apostles, spirits, ministers, and so on, I mean, we call them influencers, right? I saw a headline and I read just a little bit of the article the other day about two mommy bloggers. I mean, they had like a YouTube channel or something. I didn't look into the details and I didn't know their names, but they did this sort of mommy blogging thing on social media and they were both arrested for child neglect and abuse because some of their kids were like emaciated and starving to death and an older child said something like, finally, finally somebody looked behind the curtain and saw how fake this was. So I think how many people probably were being influenced by those. I mean, I'm not blaming the people who, you know, were listening to the lies, but we need to do our part to live close enough to the spirit that we start to detect those false notes. And we can, we can. I'm not saying we will every time know when somebody is lying to us, but over time, you're going to know. And I'm so grateful to work with many, many clients who have made this so clear to me that they were led to truth because they are seekers of truth. And maybe somebody in their life was trying to deceive them or to hide something that was important to make known. And that the Lord gave them direction that helped them to discover what needed to be known. I'm always so grateful when I hear those stories and I believe them implicitly. We can have the help of heaven in detecting deception. It may not happen in every moment, but it will happen if we are seeking the truth and we are becoming more and more familiar with the Spirit as we live worthy of the Spirit. Boyd K. Packer, in a speech called Revelation in the Changing World, October 1989, said, Few things disturb the channels of Revelation quite so effectively as those people who are misled and think themselves to be chosen to instruct others when they are not chosen. Okay, and see, look, physician heal thyself, right? Like I want to look in the mirror on these things all the time because I am trying to share things through this podcast. And that's not a calling. I'm 
volunteering to do this. But I know that as long as I quote scripture and I quote the prophets in correct context to the best of my ability, that we can all grow together. And that this isn't about the gospel of Jesus Christ according to Lily Anderson, but it's according to, you know, Boy K. Packer or President Nelson or President Oaks or Bruce R. McConkie. And we put all those together with the very words of scripture themselves of the Lord Jesus Christ and his designated apostles. We won't stray far from the truth. We may not all understand everything all at once, and we hopefully are still growing line upon line, precept on precept, as we continue through life until we cross over. But we can stay close to the truth if we watch our sources. And if we don't become arrogant about like, I know everything. And if you don't agree with me, you know, you're wrong. But we do have some of that going on these days, especially in some of our sensitive issues, like the whole idea of relationships between men and women. And the differences between men and women and God's divine division of labor and his plan for men and women as opposed to what the world sees or what the feminists see or what the LGBTQ lobby sees or all of those other voices that are so often mingled with scripture these days. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh. I shouldn't pass by chapter 11 without mentioning that Paul gives a summary of his sufferings in verses... I think it's 23 all the way to 29. And this is often quoted about the perils and the sufferings that Paul experienced in his willingness to witness for the Lord. So I'm sure you will get a chance to read that if you'd like. Then, of course, he mentions the third heaven in verse 2 of chapter 12, which again showed his knowledge of the three kingdoms and even the highest level of the celestial kingdom. But in verses 7, And 8 and 9, he introduces this idea of a thorn in the flesh. Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Okay, so here's a man who knows he is getting revelation. And Christ himself spoke to Paul on the road to Damascus to turn him around and help him understand that he was loyal to the wrong church at that time. He was loyal to the old law of Moses and Jewish tradition church. He was not seeing the reality of Jesus Christ. So he had a lot of powerful spiritual experiences. Christ also, as we know, when he talks about this in the Romans, came and told Paul that he would testify of Christ in Rome. So anyway, he's having these spiritual manifestations and revelations in abundance. But he says, and this is really nice, right? Lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. So he realizes that we are frail and we are easily seduced into pride. When we have talents or gifts, if we start thinking that they are ours and that they are given to us because we're cool or we're better than other people, then we exalt ourselves above others. And that is not the purpose to which they are given. Yes, God gives us gifts, and especially if we seek them and he instructs us to seek them, but they're his gifts. They're his to bestow. We get to be the recipients in order to build the kingdom, not to build up ourselves. And remember these words of Ammon, so beautifully depicted in the Book of Mormon after their missionary journeys, as to my own strength, I am nothing, but in Christ I can do all things. So he's not exalting himself, he's exalting that Christ can work through him because he is Christ's, because he's a follower of Christ. And then Christ can magnify all of us. He can make us sufficient to the callings for which we've been foreordained in the pre-mortal life. And that is amazing and wonderful. And it's such a blessing. And we are not going to all be the same in those gifts. And that's good. As it says, you know, that creates abundance and we can all have our part But this is not to exalt us. It's not for us to look in the mirror and say like, boy, I'm really good at that, you know? And even if we know we're good at it, it's like, okay, but what a wonderful thing that God has given me this opportunity to share because this gift comes from him. It's not my own strength. It's his strength. So in order to avoid that kind of pride, Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, we don't know what this thorn in the flesh is, and I think that's a blessing because then we can feel a little bit closer to it because we can say like, okay, well, 
We all probably have a thorn in the flesh. Some challenge, or it could be an affliction, or it could be a weakness that we have, that we struggle with, that we haven't fully conquered, and we don't have the capacity to conquer it on our own. We need the powers of heaven to help us overcome the struggle. And God allows us to keep it for a while sometimes to help us be humble and to learn how to depend on him. So Paul explains that. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that it might depart from me. He prayed three specific times. And I don't imagine that was like three prayers in three days, but probably three different seasons of his life when it flared up again and he went to the Lord and said, please, please, if it be possible, remove this bitter cup from me, this thorn in the flesh. But Paul continues in verse 9, And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. This is Christ speaking to Paul, that Christ's power, strength, and perfection is manifest in the weakness of his people, because he is mighty to save. Going on, Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Now, that doesn't mean he's happy to have a thorn in the flesh. It doesn't mean that he's glad that he has this weakness or temptation or disability, whatever it is. It's not that he loves that, but he loves what it can do for him. Again, we're back to a theme that I often repeat. The big tragedy of life is if we waste our suffering. Because suffering has a purpose. There is a purpose to pain. And it is to prepare us for qualifying for the kingdom. It is to polish us off and buff off our rough edges. It is to help us learn and grow and gain faith and patience and increase compassion and lots of other lessons that can come through specific trials. And that's what Christ is saying. So Paul understands and says, I will rather glory in my infirmities. In other words, I glory in the plan. I glory in a plan that allows my weakness to be made whole in Christ, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. And to finish that completely would be, then am I strong in Christ. I found a speech that I don't remember. It was by one of the 70 named Elder Ray H. Wood, given in the end sign, February 2003. The thorn was to serve as a reminder of Paul's dependence upon the Lord. Thus, he correctly identifies the purpose of his affliction and the reason it was not removed. He is therefore not resentful, nor offended by the Lord's refusal to comply with his prayerful requests. That's beautifully stated. If we get resentful or offended that the Lord won't immediately remove our weaknesses or our troubles, that's going to sabotage the entire system. We'll be wasting our suffering. Continuing, Elderwood says, as hard as it may be, Paul willingly submits. He recognizes that willing submission to whatever God imposes brings God's grace to strengthen us and help us bear that which is imposed. The people of Alma learned this great lesson when their prayers for deliverance from persecution and bondage were met instead with the power to endure their temporary captivity and thereby stand as witnesses that God hears us in our afflictions and provides for our needs as he perceives them rather than as we desire Again, I love the phrasing here. God hears our afflictions, and he does respond, but in a way that he perceives them to be best met, which is sometimes in the future. And he's saying, in the meantime, you're going to learn a lot in the valley of the shadow or in the trenches. And if we were to get the affliction removed or the weakness taken away or the trial ended before its time, as ordained by God's all-knowing wisdom, We would sabotage the plan of our own growth. Boy, it's so important for us to understand this. Paul's comparison of the thorn to the messenger of Satan to buffet me is most likely a recognition that the devil delighted to witness his distress and revel in his discomfort, for he seeketh that all men might be miserable like unto himself. A pointed lesson to be learned from this 
is that although Satan is not normally the one who imposes the infliction, for most afflictions come as the result of the operation of natural laws and other people misusing their agency, he rejoices in our misery and would love to see us accuse God and resent the infirmity that may be for our benefit and blessing. Skipping around, Elderwood continues, The Lord God showeth us our weakness, that we may know that it is by his grace and his great condescensions unto the children of men that we have power to do these things. And later, again in the talk, Paul learns that it is because of Christ's merits that he is sustained in his adversity, not because of his own abilities or willpower, but there is a condition, the grace of Christ. His power, his strength, his help is only made perfect in weakness. When a person ultimately recognizes his total dependency on Christ and lets his will be swallowed up in God's will, then and only then can this enabling power be brought to bear in perfection. Now, we talked a little bit about that book, Original Grace, a while ago by Adam Miller, and I quoted some things that I liked from there that, again, really really help us sometimes in the church to not get too dependent on our own arms of flesh, even if it's our own hardworking, obedient arm. That's been a challenge for me, and I know I've learned this lesson a few different times in my adult life, which means I haven't completely learned the lesson, obviously, but I think I've learned it, and then I need the reminder sometimes. Because some of us, you know, we're willing to work hard, and we want to be self-sufficient and take care of our stewardships, including ourselves. So what do we do? If we have a big challenge ahead of us, we get up earlier and stay up later and run faster and jump higher. And that's still the arm of flesh. Now, I'm not suggesting we should not do our part. As I've said forever, we need to pedal and let the Lord steer. So the Lord does want us to move forward in faith and not just to, I'm mixing all my metaphors, forgive me, but sit on our suitcase and wait for the bus. You know, if we just wait and say like, well, when the Lord wants to take care of this, you know, I'm sure he will. But he likes us to continue to try to grow and move forward and chart a direction, but to be very flexible about where we end up. As long as we're pointed toward Christ, he will guide our steps when it is necessary. My point, again, is that it's challenging sometimes to stop just trying to work harder because we're used to applying our own strength, our own will, our own willingness, our own agency to say, I can do this, or I'm going to work harder to get this done. And while I would hate to be one to say not to work hard or to sometimes gear up in times of adversity, but I believe that God wants us to understand this principle that Paul is talking about, that it is in Christ that we have the capacity to overcome and to deal with our adversities. When we're going through hard things, God doesn't intend for us to just slug through the trenches on our own. He will be with us. We may not always detect that, but he will be because he does not abandon his people. Now, if we abandon him, that's different. He will not force himself into our lives. But if we have opened that door and we invite him in and we desire him to be with us, he is with us. Sometimes it may be in a way that we cannot detect, but that does not mean he's not there. And it doesn't mean that he's not magnifying our efforts and our strength, and we can trust it. I truly believe that when we get beyond the veil, we're going to look back and say like, oh, yes, he was there. He was with me. He carried most of the burden. (laughs) I thought I was working so hard, but Christ and his enabling power is what sustained me and brought me home. Let's lean on his ample arm, as the hymn says. Let's trust him and go to him. I've quoted this many times, Martin Luther, who once wrote, Today I have so much to do, I'll need to spend another hour on my knees. This isn't about getting up earlier and staying up later on our own. It's about, okay, Lord, when should I get up in order to accomplish what you want me to do? When should I go to sleep so that I can awake more rested in the morning? How do you want me to do this so that I can magnify your strength in my weakness? Elderwood continues, Jacob's word in the Book of Mormon summarized the required completeness of this surrender. And whoso knocketh, to him will he open. 
and the wise and the learned and they that are rich who are puffed up because of their learning and their wisdom and their riches, save they shall cast these things away and consider themselves fools before God and come down in the depths of humility, he will not open unto them. Understanding this, Paul most gladly, therefore, glories in his adversity. He takes pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake, because he knows that only by enduring well can the power of Christ rest upon him. It is only when he recognizes his weakness, his inability to save himself, his vulnerability to evil and death, and his need for a redeemer that he can then become strong, relying alone upon the merits of Christ. Such beautiful doctrine, brothers and sisters. Such beautiful doctrine. Chapter 13, Paul gives some parting counsel. Just going to touch on a couple of these verses. Verse 1, in the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. We know that principle. Verse 5, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates? But I trust that ye shall know that we are not reprobates. Now I pray to God that ye do no evil. Not that we should appear approved, but that we should do that which is honest, though we be as reprobates. I mean, in one way of speaking, we're all going to be unprofitable servants, right? But we try to live clean and become diligent in our covenant keeping. And then this late counsel in verse 11, finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Always the reminder, brothers and sisters, we're going to have to come together. And that has to be the mind of Christ. It's not that a powerful personality is going to compel a less powerful personality to believe the same way they do. It's because if we come to Christ and we start to think the way he thinks, because we do what he does in our clumsy and perfect way, but ever relying on his strength in our weakness, then we will become a Zion people. Live in peace. Contention is not part of this, right? And the God of love and peace shall be with you. Beautiful words. Now, let's add a current event today. <laughs> How's that? My daughter, Caitlin, sent me a notice of this one, and I just wanted to comment on it briefly. Here's the headline from August 31st of this year. So this just happened. The court rules in Pornhub's favor in finding the Texas age verification law violates the First Amendment, which is protecting free speech, right? So the <laughs> article begins, score one for Pornhub. And this is a federal judge in Texas that ruled that a law that Governor Abbott signed into law that required Pornhub to do more efforts at reasonable age verification methods, meaning that they should not just let their site be accessible to anybody because children could access it and it could you know, be really harmful to them to see all this terrible material. It's harmful to everybody to see this material. But aren't we trying to protect our children? Anyway, they said that this was not sufficiently reasonable and that it violated First Amendment or freedom of speech. And in addition, pornography sites would have been forced to display a Texas Health and Human Services warning in at least 14-point font, very specific. One such warning was specified to read, Pornography increases the demand for prostitution child exploitation, and child pornography along, and then also listing a national toll-free number for people with mental health disorders so they can get help if they feel like they're addicted. You know, basically it's saying we put that warning many years ago on the cigarette packages as a nation. We designated that they had to put a warning that this could be hazardous to your health. And the companies didn't want to do that. Obviously, the cigarette companies didn't want to say, hey, this could be a bad thing for you. But the law said, look, we want to protect people and at least they should be advised if they haven't been taught this or they haven't heard it or maybe it'll just act as a reminder. They wanted to do something similar and say that this is tied in with child exploitation and prostitution and child pornography and trafficking. So do you really want to contribute to that through this 
addictive behavior. And instead, here's a number where you can get help. And there are all kinds of programs out there that can help us, right? Anyway, so in this August 30th ruling, a senior U.S. District Judge David Ezra of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Texas wrote that this was unconstitutional and so on. Now, I don't know the details of this, and I do want to be cautious and say that there was some talk about how the statute was not narrow enough so that the application could be abused or whatever. Now, I'm not a legal scholar. I don't know the technicalities of the law. I know, though, that some laws are badly written and can be overly broad or overly narrow or, you know, overly burdensome anyway, that the writing of the law is important and that the language that is used can be misinterpreted easily or it can lead to abuses of the principle behind it or any of that stuff. So I don't know the details of this. Maybe it was a badly written law. Maybe it wasn't. But it just reminds us that... (laughs) that here we are in a world that fires a high school football coach for praying at the 50-yard line after games and inviting his team to join him, but not compelling anybody, and often getting members of his own team and members of the opposing team to come and offer gratitude to the Lord at the end of a game. Again, no compulsion, just his own example, and he's not turning anybody away. And he lost his job. Now, not that long ago, that was reversed by the Supreme Court. It had to go all the way to the Supreme Court, and they reversed that firing and said that they had to give him his job back and also compensate him. So that was a good finding. Chalk went up for religious liberty, but he had to go all the way to the Supreme Court just to defend his right to do that. And yet we're in a country that won't even pretend to protect children from drag queens or Pornhub. So That's just evil. And if the law was badly written, you'd think there could have been a better discussion. And I don't know. I don't know the details of what the decision said in writing, but I am just pointing out the irony that here we are calling good evil and evil good. And there is persecution of people trying to do the right thing and a celebration of the things that can destroy ourselves, our children, our families, our society. How tragic is that? Now, here's another thought, because since we talked about sophistry a little bit today, these false teachers, these people, perhaps influencers that set themselves up as if they are teaching truth, but then they just twist it a little bit, as Elder McConkie, who said, false prophets always arise to oppose the true prophets, and they will prophesy so very near the truth that they will deceive almost the very chosen ones. So I was thinking about that, and I saw this post somewhere, and I don't look a lot on social media, but occasionally I will check and see what certain people are saying. I don't want to spend a lot of time with it, I'll be honest. But this time I saw something that said, and that could kind of concentrate our sophistry of the week, it is damaging to teach our young women that they must cover their bodies to protect men. This is a great example of sophistry. It comes close to the truth but misses it completely and makes a turn that is very deceptive and contrary to the principles of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So this statement says that we should not teach young women that they have to cover their bodies to protect men. Well, how about we take that apart a little bit and say, should we teach young women and young men to appropriately cover their bodies? How about just that? But see the implication here? that they shouldn't have to do it to protect men, so they shouldn't have to do it. And they can dress any way they darn well please, and nobody can accuse them of being, you know, unrighteous or less worthy because a woman doesn't have to do that, and it's damaging for them to think they have to cover their bodies to protect men. You see the link there? Again, why are we linking those two things together immediately, or at least without first just separating them and saying, God has asked us through covenant When we are baptized, we become a member of his church to treat our bodies as the temples of our spirit and that we should be modest and reverent concerning those things. So yes, to flaunt our bodies is not God's way. That's never going to be God's way. That doesn't mean a woman can't be attractive. It means that she should dress appropriately to show reverence to the garment of the holy priesthood. And she doesn't have to wait till she's endowed to do that, although I know that some modifications may be made at a time someone goes through a temple, and that's fine, but they can still be modest. And they should continue to be modest. So 
that is part of the covenant we make with God. And to say it this way makes it sound like we're oppressing women to ask them to keep their own covenants. And we're trying to throw in this little curveball that says, oh, you know, now you're making us responsible for men. And that's the classic rape culture argument, right? Now women are responsible if they, you know, stimulate men beyond their capacity to control themselves, which is not what we're saying, because men, of course, have an obligation to control their own behavior and make their own choices. Nobody is arguing that who has any sense. But to juxtapose those ideas, great example of sophistry. Let me quote from Elder Tad R. Collister. This was from a speech that he gave at BYU-Idaho, and he got hammered for this on social media. Shame on us as a people that we cannot even listen to these things without falling into the sophist's arguments. Elder Collister said, Our dress affects not only our thoughts and actions, but also the thoughts and actions of others. So just because we don't want to make women think that that is the only reason they need to dress modestly, because it's not. It's one of the reasons. But the big reason is that their covenant with God requires modest clothing and reverence for their body and not desiring to flaunt it. But let's also go further. And as I've said before, and this actually was in a conversation I had with one of my sons after Tad Collister gave this speech, and my son was asking my opinion of it. I hadn't heard it at the time, so I went and read it. And then we had a good conversation. And my answer then, as it is now, would be, am I not my brother's keeper? Am I really trying to make it harder for men to keep their covenants while breaking my own? Like, how does that help anybody? So our dress affects not only our thoughts and actions, but also the thoughts and actions of others. Accordingly, Paul the Apostle counseled women to adorn themselves in modest apparel. The dress of a woman has a powerful impact upon the minds and passions of men. If it is too low or too high or too tight, it may prompt improper thoughts, even in the mind of a young man who is striving to be pure. Now, there's a fine line here, right? Like, the man still has the obligation, if he chooses to be a covenant man, to move his eyes, to change the direction of his thoughts. But are we really doing our part as sisters in Zion to make that harder for him? And as I said, are we just skipping over the part where I've made my own covenants? to treat my body with respect and not flaunt it immodestly? Like, come on. Like, why are we trying to say this is either or? Either a woman can dress like a skank or she's being oppressed and she's being made responsible for everybody else's actions. That's not true. But don't we have an interdependence on each other? And how could this work out in Zion any other way? How can we become a people of one heart and one mind? with no poor, if we don't care about how our actions might make it harder for somebody else to keep their covenants. Aren't we in this together? Do women benefit from having men struggle? No, it's the opposite. We need each other. And certainly you can turn this around. Do men benefit if women struggle? No. And it may not be about modesty, but it could be about other things. So aren't we wanting to be equally yoked as believers And that doesn't have to just be marriage. Can we just be equally yoked as fellow covenant keepers and try to help each other along the covenant path? Going on, men and women can look sharp and be fashionable, yet they can also be modest. Women particularly can dress modestly and in the process contribute to their own self-respect, which deserves a lot longer time than we're going to give it today. But that is so true. Women who flaunt themselves do not exhibit healthy self-respect and contribute to the moral purity of men. In the end, this is the part he really got nailed for. (laughs) In the end, most women get the type of man they dress for. (laughs) We are a strange culture, brothers and sisters. Can you imagine? I mean, that's not untrue. That's not untrue. I know I taught my sons that modesty mattered, and it said something about a girl. And this wasn't about condemning girls who didn't dress a certain way because maybe they weren't taught well. So it wasn't a judgment on their character, but it did say something about how they understood the gospel or how well they knew it or what they thought of it or you know how they chose to address it. 
And we're not trying to take the place of God, who is the ultimate judge, but just to make an appropriate intermediate judgment. We've talked about that many times. And to say that like, hey, if that's the way somebody is choosing to live and dress, then that means something. And it should go that direction with lots of behaviors, <laughs> not just modest dress, but what kind of language somebody uses, what kind of media they consume, how they act on social media platforms. You know, do they pay their bills regularly? Do they have a good reputation with the people closest to them for telling the truth, for helping, for being kind? Anyway, of course, we have a right to look at those things. And as I have mentioned before, I have had all too many men in my office or in an appointment that have not desired to offload their personal responsibility for their own behaviors onto a woman or to any woman or to anyone else. But they have sadly commented that while they will take complete ownership of where their eyes rest and where their thoughts land, why does it have to be so hard at church? I think that's a fair question. I want to be my brother's keeper, not to the extent of being ridiculous about owning his or her choices. But yes, I want to love my neighbor. I want to strengthen my sisters and my brethren. And why should I choose behaviors that don't do that? This is real sophistry, brothers and sisters. Avoid it like the plague. Point it out to your children. They need to understand how to hear those things and recognize the false notes recognize the sophistry, recognize that deception that tries to come in there and ultimately convince people or persuade people to break their covenants or treat them with lightness and irreverence and casual observance rather than covenant observance. We can do it, brothers and sisters. We can choose glory. We can become a Zion people. I want to thank my Patreon subscribers. You are making it possible for me to continue. I am so grateful for that. I hope that that can grow if you're interested so that we can continue to go for quite a while. And I want to thank, as ever, my husband, Chris Anderson, and Doug Larson of Point Digital. Take care. <music>